Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz, who, before I ask her to say hello, Laura, um, it should be known that right before we got on the air, gave a delightful take about what she felt about 70% of all Pinot Noirs. They're it thin. A, it was a very specific wine take. Um, They're man, thin. It was, it was honestly overwhelming to listen to. But <laughs> say hello, Laura. Hello. <laughs> um, Drink Tempranillos instead. Okay. Um, so... Today is August 4th. It's Friday. Um, we're going to be talking about all kinds of wonderful things today, um, focusing especially on Michiko uh, Kakatani's leaving of the New York Times um, dun, dun, as, their, as their iconic book reviewer. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, I think. Um, but before we do any of that, how about the basic rundown, huh? Yes, absolutely. So it is August, which means it's time to announce our special episodes. Our query episode goes live August 17th. That is a Thursday, followed by Writing by Reading, which goes live on the 24th. So definitely Mm -hmm. stay tuned on our social media um, to figure out what that is, because it's going to be a fun one. I just gave my copy of it to Eric, and he's very (laughs) excited to read it. Um, (laughs) And then our first pages episode will go live August 31st also a Thursday. If you have queries or first pages or suggestions or questions or anything, send them to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Um, so before we get into our delightful cornucopia of topics today, um, <laughs> you you were at a thing this weekend. I did. That's why we, we didn't record this last week. I, you were yes, at a book thing. Tell I was at it. RWA, which uh-huh. is the Romance Writers of America National Convention. How was it? It was filled with women. <laughs> No, it was great. It was it was honestly one of the least mentally grueling conferences I've ever been to. Okay. So I like I left it feeling ex- like like really excited and inspired yeah. to be in publishing rather than just like I needed a nap. That's, not, that's a nice feeling. And a beer. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Um the only thing though is with the exception of one beautiful dinner that I had um with the folks at Karina Press, um so this is this is a conference of I, I saw numbers of two thousand and five thousand women. I think it was probably closer to two thousand. Not all women, but just statistically, people who write romance yeah. are usually women. Yeah. Um, and so the hotel, which was in Orlando, Florida, in July, which was very swampy, mm-hmm. um, they they hosted a bunch of kind of like dinners and happy hours and lunches and that sort of thing, like part events, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Eric, all I ate, was, <laughs> all I ate, with the exception of just this one dinner, was salad and dessert. Mm, that I sounds lit- yes, just I, awful. I, I, I literally went to one of the restaurants in the hotel mm-hmm. for a meeting, mm-hmm. and they handed me the lunch menu, and they had on the lunch menu three salads, and then I could make my own salad, uh-huh. and that was it. Did any and of then, the salads have like fried chicken in it or anything? No, like that was one my, of them yeah. had steak. Yeah, um, but they were cut in very small pieces, yeah. and it, I mean it was well cooked steak, but it was obviously right. that's the one I ordered. Uh-huh. Um, and then they had like a bar where it was like kind of uh, like a bu- dessert buffet. Uh-huh. And I was like, you brought me in here and fed me iceberg lettuce with a little bit of steak on it, time and now you dessert. time for some dessert. Yeah. I also went to multiple. Um, I also went to multiple happy hour events mm-hmm. where all they had was water and wine. I'm loving that 
this is a like food and drink review of the conference instead of anything to do with books. I I'm think, getting there. No, 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 no. I think we should cut it off before we do any book talk. I think this is the important stuff. <laughs> no, it was it was totally lovely. It was just like yeah. I came back and yeah. I was like I came back to the Midwest and uh-huh. I was like I'm not in 110 degree weather with 100 percent humidity anymore. It wasn't 110 Time degrees. Time to find yourself I'm just, some melted cheese. Over yeah, something. Yeah. I was like, I just want a potato and some cheese. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, because I'm I'm Minnesotan. Yeah. No, but it was it was lovely. They RWA is an inter er, is is a national. I think it might be international organization of you know, and it is one of the most active writers organizations in the country. Mm. Um, they're very very supportive. They have these wonderful little conferences all around, and yeah. RWA has all of these different tracks and like these huge, huge, huge authors. And there's this wonderful sense of like supportiveness and community because I've been to a lot of general writers conferences, right? Right. And a lot of that, um, you see somebody and, you know, you ask them like, hey, what do you write? And they say romance. And there's sometimes a little bit of a sense at these larger at these larger conferences that the romance writers like aren't like the good or serious ones. Yeah. Um, and it was really kind of freeing to be at this romance centered conference because everyone was like, hell yes, I write romance. Hell yes, this is fun to read. We're going to like kick some ass well, and was, sell tons of books. That was what we talked about um, with Carly when we did that episode way back when. Is that yeah, with she Carly Silver. All those mm-hmm. people as, um, you know, very, I mean, these are some of the most professional writers, if not the, I and would almost say prolific. It's probably the most workmanlike professional genre of writer there is. Oh, truthfully. yes. So, um, yeah, no, I think that they get an unfair rap for that, as Carly yeah. so eloquently pointed out when she was on the show. But I'm glad to hear that that was your experience. Yeah, it well. was it was really lovely to be at a conference where nobody apologized for what they were working on. Right. Yeah. Like as somebody as somebody who, you know, kind of helps to bolster creatives feelings a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, it was it was a lovely supportive event. Yeah. And I'm really glad that I went even though I only ate salad and had wine. Um. <laughs> um, so our next thing. Yes. Um, Which is not at all related. Right. That was – that was in the folks in the radio business, we call that a transition. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got another book deal that hit the public, um, public eye very recently, one that is from a real hero of the resistance. Yes. Hashtag you know. resist. <laughs> Someone who, uh, like, very quickly became, like, the most hated person or from moved from the most hated person in America to, like, everyone's, like, favorite resistance folk hero uh, for some reason. Everyone's I still, dad. I, yeah, exactly. I still haven't figured out how this happened, um, and I'm not really that interested in interrogating why. But uh, James Comey, um, FBI director, former FBI, FBI director. Who was um, fired who by Who was fired Trump. by our fearless leader. Um He's got a book coming out, a memoir. He was it was rumored to have been shopped, you know, like a couple of months ago. It was, yeah. you know, kind of making the rounds. Yeah. But it's been acquired by Bob Miller and Colin Dick Colin Dickerman, um, who are editors at Flatiron Books, which is an imprint of Macmillan. Right. So they bought World English Rights, uh, and it'll be coming out this spring. Yeah. Um, so there was one there was one very funny detail in the write-up on this book so far that we know. And it's more, I guess, about what we don't know, but I feel like it's kind of actually what we know, um, which is that there's they can't comment on whether there's going to be any Trump stuff in it, <laughs> um, which to me is 
Yeah, I guess raises a few things. I mean, the first is that um, Comey is obviously, as we've seen, a fairly meticulous person. You know, he's someone who probably wants to, you know, keep things, keep information, you know, dispersed at the proper times or whatever. So, like, maybe there actually is, like, a ton of really juicy Trump stuff that all the people who are going to buy this are hoping to find. Um, but my sense is that if they had that, they'd be telling us or at least hinting at it. Yeah. Um, for the for the buzz, they would have said, you'll hear the Trump stuff in the press release. Yeah. Like, the, yeah, exactly. Like, they could have just said, we don't know. Uh, we can't tell you what it is. But um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think what we're going to get here is a lot of people who buy this book um, hoping for their little bit of resistance catharsis, right? Like they're hoping that they can open up this book in spring and read the chapter called, Guess What, Guys, He Did It. <laughs> and <laughs> you should edit this book. That, that isn't, yeah, no, I'm changing, all the, I'm changing all the chapter titles to things like that. Um, like chapter one could be, Did He Do It? And then the next chapter will be, Yes. Um, <laughs> just like little, I mean, but that's honestly what people are wanting in this book. Like no one, I think, I mean, truthfully, people don't really know that much about like if you ask just any random person on the street who then spent like five straight hours tweeting about how awesome James Comey is for like writing things down at his job, um, I don't think they actually know that much about him. And I think it's going to be very funny when this book is about his actual, um, you know, time and service um, at the FBI and like his life as opposed to just like these dramatic like juicy scenes of him sitting in the Oval Office like being asked to – you know, pledges loyalty. Please don't investigate the treason or whatever it is they're like hoping to find in this book. Um, For which, the record, yeah. this book, uh, and this is directly from the press release yeah. that Flatiron uh, put out. It's it will explore what's good ethical leadership, what good ethical leadership looks like, and how it drives sound decisions. That's what I mean. Like it's just going to be <laughs> one of those like just generic books from someone who worked at a job for a while. It's really easy to look at that and be like, oh, this is going to be entirely like against what Trump has been doing because he's done none of that. But I bet it's just. Well, no, it's going to be from a Republican FBI director, which means it's going to have a bunch in there. um, Well, it's not going to have any of this, but were it a true memoir, you'd have a bunch in there about how he didn't push back against waterboarding, how he didn't, um, you know, how he helped expand the surveillance state, how he did all sorts of, you know, things that a conservative FBI director would do that most resistance folk would probably dislike. Um, mm. But, like, we've turned to me, you know, I mean, this is 2017, so we turn anybody um, who even says, who just, like, shouts sir enough, loud enough at the president into a resistance hero. And um, now a bunch of people like that are going to buy this book, and they're going to be deeply disappointed because that's not who this guy is. But I'm I'm ready. Like I'm amused for like what's going to be a very like generic and boring like <laughs> discussion of like decorum. Celebrity memoirs are always really, really, really kind of disappointing. Yeah, I'm guessing that at least 15 percent of this book will be talking about Comey's dad or his baseball coach <laughs> and about like what he they taught him as a child about good leadership. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was going to make a bad bad joke that I'm not going to make. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think the fact that you – the impulse to call it a celebrity memoir is interesting there. And I think that that's entirely um, illustrative of a lot of the problems that both publishing and like the world yeah. is having right now. I mean which that's is 100 percent what turn, it is. We just turn everything into these – you know, it's all just one big thing of entertainment, right? Like we want to we take anyone who has any remote connection to any of this 
and turn them into like folk heroes that have nothing to do with their actual records or who they are, read their, you know, memoirs and like piece together. Like it's all just one big like entertainment complex. Like you get books. I mean, how many books have we seen from just, I mean, we're, like didn't the gardener of the White House write a book recently? I think so. I think so. Like we've got the stenographer who wrote, who has a memoir out. Like, Every single person is, you know, we just want these, like, tell-alls from just anyone we can find. And it turns it into this, like, everyone just wants it to be a story. You know, everyone wants it to be something they can consume and, like, feel, like I said, there's, like, that emotional catharsis we want from these books that I'm telling you is not going to come from this one. And um, I don't know. Like, I I find it to be a little bit misguided. And we've talked before on this show a lot about um, how, you know, the two kinds of books in publishing now are – on you know on not totally anonymous novels that receive no coverage, and then giant celebrity memoirs that uh, publishers pour money into without anything really in between. And I don't know, like we'll see, but I think this is going to be a disappointment for all the people who, um, you know, are like hoping for you know the big James Comey reveal. It's not going to come in a commercial book. I'm excited though to see the critical reviews of it and i think we'll get down a little bit later in this episode about why i'm excited to see the critical (laughs) reviews of this yeah but the critical i mean i guess we will talk about it but like the critical review you want of this book in light of what we're going to say isn't coming for this one people are just going to be like confused and sad (laughs) i have no faith that this book is going to be discussed productively whatsoever oh well um but i have anyway i have um another speaking of celebrity authors Mm -hmm. forbes just came out with their um, yearly list of highest earning dollar 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 bills. <laughs> their highest earning writers. Yeah. Um, my favorite part about the Forbes report uh-huh. is that they called James Patterson freakishly prolific because, mm-hmm. like yeah. Forbes, we scooped you. We got there first. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I found the list interesting. Yeah, so just to kind of give you a little um, a little insight, there there are a bunch of ties. So there's actually like eleven authors on this list. Um, all of them this year have netted over three hundred million dollars and have sold over uh, two million books. So this is this just year. just so we're clear on what this list is. It's what richest authors over the last year. Yes, like, people like with pre-tax, the most, most gross earnings from their books, pre-tax over. The, Not just from their books. It's uh, it's from, from other stuff too. yeah, just okay. like what these people earned and when you okay. know they're mostly writers. Okay. So J.K. Rowling topped the list, which was a little bit surprising actually, yeah. because the movies are done and she's not you know. Well, I guess I don't know. She's not doing any more well Harry Potter books, except she is. She is still doing. I mean, she's this was still, like the yeah. first year she didn't. She didn't have one, yeah, which like, is why so, it's surprising. Which is why yeah. it's about to drop. Which is why she'll drop off fairly soon, um, because you know that you can't keep the the Harry train going forever. Probably. Yeah. But there's also you know James Patterson, Jeff Kinney, Dan Brown, Stephen King, John Grisham, Nora Roberts. Um, Paula Hawkins is on there, and so is E.L. James. I'm guessing that E.L. James we're gonna, is going to drop off next year, given that the movies Shades will be done. Of, yeah, run its course mm-hmm. a little. And um, then Rick Riordan at the uh, uh-huh. at the very very end of the list with a paltry 11 million. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I once had a meeting um, with someone who were he wasn't the agent for John Grisham, but he worked uh, with the people who represented John Grisham, and he was telling me like. You know, they had whole like department. They had like a whole department of people like devoted to him. Like that's because, the dream. It is the dream. Like because and like John Grisham was like 
paying for the nice office, you know, like he was the uh, the real bell cow of that whole agency. And like that's that's the thing though. It's like um, you use these big people to help pay for all the other books, you know. The one and, thing though that that really kind of caught my eye. Well, the first thing that I, mm-hmm. that you know we don't need to talk at length about, but almost half of this list is women, which mm-hmm. is kind of exciting. Danielle Steele's on the list. Yep, yep. yep. Um, also, it's it's kind of very, very obvious. And of course, this, you know, a lot of you will hear this and you'll go, well, of course, Laura, of course. Hmm. But I find it really interesting that, you know, Forbes takes time to say that most of these earnings come from book sales. Yeah. But I think it's really, really interesting that most of the people on this list are pretty much only on this list and are selling these high number of books because they're also have they also have movies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I mean I think what you're you know, what's really there, and this is like like you said, a fairly basic point, is that um it's just like the breathability of this intellectual property, right? Like the people who are on this list are the ones who can take their books. I mean, most of these are, most of these authors are series writers. Most of these authors are um, you know, writers who can then you could be easily translated into other forms, whether it's movies, yeah. whether it's whether it's you know immersive theme parks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean it's it's interesting to see who makes this, and I think you know Stephen, our friend Stephen King, yep. is on this. Well, he um, just had the the Dark Tower, which I yeah. hear is horrible. Really? But then oh, yes, and then Steven. the It remake. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the Dark Tower is his, is his fault. I mean, we should be giving Stephen millions of dollars just for his tweets. But. Yes. Yes, we should. Um, we should tell Forbes. Maybe they'll report on that and yeah. make it make it kind of big. So I think really the real takeaway here is that to be the best writer of books that you can be and to be the best at books, you need to be also in movies and television and theme parks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's your lesson for today. <laughs> you know, so the right tip this week is to begin construction on your immersive author content theme park. Correct. Um, definitely downprice the butterbeer or whatever your equivalent yep. is because that shit was way too expensive. Yeah. I, I mean, Harper Lee has a, has a theme park <laughs> coming. So yep. if Harper has one. Yeah. You can have one. You can have one. Yeah. So it's time for, I think, one of oh. my favorite <laughs> new segments. I'm very excited. Every week we do this, I'm excited. Um, okay, so I want to make sure I get the exact title right because the title is very important to me. Um, it's the – because I remember the acronym was making some people mad, so I want to make sure we get the acronym exactly right. The Fiction Writer Under FBI Investigation of the Week – there's like a comment. That's in there. not yeah. correct. It's <laughs> what is it? Fiction author under investigation by the FBI. Oh, comma, I added it. of the week. I added in a bunch of other or other other words. Yeah. Well, it's your it. it's your title, so you need to get it right. Mm, no, <laughs> I, I prefer to just kind of kind of just wing it. But folks, folks, this week we have a very fun one um, because you know one thing we you know a common theme. As we've you know done these the last few, um, is that it's always the FBI in the mid twentieth century, like keeping files and investigations on people they view as like dissidents or like communists or like you know people they view sort of as a threat to mostly communists. Um, yeah, I mean it's pretty much uniformly common communists. But um, luckily for the FBI, they had a friend in the author community. <laughs> they had someone who was willing to to be the narc that they needed. And that's why, folks, this week's FBI um, author is Ayn Rand. 
Oh, boy. Who was not under investigation, but was rather conversely constantly writing notes to J. Edgar Hoover as, like, a fan <laughs> and, like, asking and to meet and, like, reporting. Sending, sending him her books. She was just, like, sending him newspaper clippings and stuff, like, in, like, 1947 as, like, hey, it, it was all, like, book stuff. Like, so she sent a note to him um, in the FBI, and they have all these, like, funny notes from her um, about how – Basically, every book she ever read was um, was communist and was going to, like, infiltrate, you know, American life and, like, do all these things. And so the first person she ratted on uh, was a George Orwell. Uh, Ayn Rand was not a fan of mm. Animal Farm. Um, she um, – <laughs> yeah, she sent in a uh, – like a clipping of something here. I'm looking at the report that got scanned out. Um, a quiet little allegory for animals. And it's like a review about um, – yeah, so basically like she was she was writing all the time. Like anytime she, you know, felt like communism was creeping into that good old, you know, American way of life, she was sending handwritten notes to the point that she asked J. Edgar Hoover to uh, to meet her. She wanted to like come in and like discuss objectivism with him and – <laughs> he he turned her down. He, he like blew her off. Yeah, right? like he didn't. He uh, like kind of rudely. Yeah, um, he he was not interested. He also she also or her and her publisher also sent the FBI tons of her books. I think she wanted like a book club mm. with the FBI. Didn't they just go straight to evidence lockers? Yeah, no, they just like stuffed it right away and like <laughs> in an evidence locker. <laughs> I just what? love the idea that we've got an FBI fangirl here. Um, and of course, you know, in keeping with you know the the people and um, who end up loving Ayn Rand in our in our current age, it kind of makes sense that she would be someone who um, was just constantly trying to you know tell on her her peers. When um, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI says, "Slow your roll, writer. You're too yeah. anti-communist." This, this is a little much. <laughs> um, That's just the best. Her, so her funniest disagreement, though, was about uh, the movie um, "It's a Wonderful Life," uh. because she had this whole thing about, um, and I'll and I'll read the thing that her group published. Um, but she had this hobby horse of just believing that. All of Hollywood was like this communist project to like warp the minds of well, Americans. Sure. Yeah, which you know definitely. <laughs> um, I wish. Uh, <laughs> um, but tell so, that to the authors earning so, reports for yeah, Forbes. Yeah, seriously. Uh, re- redistribute J.K. Rowling's wealth. That's, Please. That's my one truly held belief. Um, so she wrote this um, this note here, or she didn't write it, but the group that she was a part of wrote this. The purpose of the communists in Hollywood is not of production of political movies openly advocating communism. Their purpose is to corrupt non-political movies by introducing small casual bits of propaganda in innocent stories and to make people absorb the basic principles of collectivism by indirect and implication. Few people would take communism straight, but a constant stream of hints, lines, touches, and suggestions battering the public from the stream will act like drops of water that split a rock if continued long enough. The rock that they are trying to split is Americanism. So, <laughs> um, yeah, she wasn't happy with mm. basically all like film stuff. Basically, you know, the whole um, you know entertainment apparatus of America was trying to infect us with communism, and like that doesn't sound entirely unfamiliar um, from a lot of conservative talking points today. That you know Hollywood's too liberal. That everything is too um, too much about. All these values that conservatives don't really like or value and are constantly pushing against against in like culture wars. Um, but I don't know. Um, so I just think it's it's funny that we have a someone on the other team. You she know, she really hated George Bailey. In this in this tradition of 
um, just basically every good author being under investigation. We have someone helping the investigation. That's important. And that is important. It's key. Thank, that's, it's called being an ally. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Please note that we're joking. Um, you are. <laughs> I'm narking on you as soon as we get out of here. <laughs> um, J. Edgar Hoover is like yelling up from his grave like, leave me alone. Yeah. Um, so. Yes. It's time. It is time. For the thing. Um, and the thing, of course, is um, Mishiko Kakatani, the beloved, um, well, I guess not entirely beloved, more like respected because she tends to have a tendency. Yeah, legendary is like honestly the right word for her. Um, the book critic of the New York Times, the one who. Vanity um, Fair called her the most feared woman in publishing. Yeah. No, I mean she was um, she was all that and more. And she has stepped down from or she's planning to um, from uh, from the New York Times. Book she's gone already. She's, yeah, she's gone already. Okay. Um, but she, she's not doing that anymore. And I thought that it would be useful or at least a, a good opportunity to talk about like book reviews and like criticism and how it might play into whether it's her um, her past or her you know or book's future and like how it kind of exists in this modern age and I guess to me like the fundamental question you know and I think the thing you, the outpouring you've sort of seen from everyone as you know we get this news because and the outpouring has been mostly very positive, right? People liked this person. I certainly did. Mm -hmm. um, is that there's never going to be someone like her again. You know, that, um, you know, this like towering critic who really um, has like the singular ability to influence the chances of an author or a book. It's sort of, it's sort of gone by the wayside a little bit. And I guess my question to you is, do people, I mean, obviously Kakatani mattered and matters because she had kind of staked this reputation for herself over, um, you know, the past few decades, you know, of like reviewing this, these towering people, and we'll get into some of the uh, funnier spats she had, uh, <laughs> ones that I'm very pleased about. Um, but um, do people like this, does criticism like this, does it fit with book culture now? Does it matter now? Like, what What do you think? Like, are things going to, is this sort of like a notable point of change to you at all? I, I think so. Yeah. Um, so? so, so I, I would like to say that, um, first of all, Eric and I are coming at this from very different angles. Eric does a lot of work in, you know, nonfiction spheres and in literary fiction spheres. I do a lot of genre and I do a lot of children's, which generally doesn't get as much attention from like the book critics sure. as, as the books that you do. Um, sure. So I think a lot of in a lot of ways, um, as these other areas of publishing are kind of growing uh -huh. and with with the way that the internet has has kind of changed book buying and reader experiences. Yeah. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways this kind of singular critic who can like make or destroy careers has in a lot of ways gone by the wayside. Well, so I think, you know, one thing with her is that you know, you know, decades ago, the New York Times book review section, like these kind of critical apparatus, um, they they mattered a lot more because that was where you got your information. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you wanted to know what a book was or how it was, um, 
you know, being received or whether or not to buy it, you had to look at the – these were where the book reviews were. You know, yeah. this is where you learned – I mean, a lot of people use, like, the bestseller list. Like, And this is something that ties into our coverage um, about, you know, the New York Times changing their book stuff, right? Like, they've kind of gone away from the bestseller list. They're – you know, not that they're going away from Kakatani, but she's going away from them. Um, you know, it's no longer – the New York Times is – no longer the place you go to learn about the books yeah. nearly as much, you know, because we live now in this sort of crowdsourced uh, information age where, you know, things like Goodreads, things like Amazon reviews, um, which we've discussed a bunch, but like that's where people are getting their initial opinions now, I think. And that and that I don't think necessarily affects um, the future of people like Kakatani, and we're going to talk about that in a sec, but like um, to me – the role of criticism has changed in that regard, that um, people aren't using it as discovery nearly as much right now. Yeah. And I think I think the Internet has done a lot of things in taking what were previously considered like amateur reviews and yeah. making them not amateur. So you yeah. think about like the publicity department at any major publisher. They send a whole bunch of advanced copies to just – like book bloggers. Yep. These are just people who yep. decided that they like to read and then they write about it. Anyone they think will reliably talk about it to a large enough audience. Yeah. Whoever and, it is. And with, you know, Goodreads and with those aggregate numbers, um, you know, a, a, in a lot of ways, the only two reviews that matter are, you know, what your friend tells you to read yeah. and then the aggregate stars, like, stars yep. of everybody. You know, you <laughs> think about like when I re- when I watch a movie now, it's not because I read about it in the paper. It's because I saw a trailer, thought it looked good and then checked it out on Rotten Tomatoes. Yep. Um, you know, and so that that seems to me like that's kind of the mode for discovery. Uh-huh. And I think and I think the reason, you know, there's also a sh- being a shift right now. You know, the New York Times last year redid how they're how they're covering mm-hmm. books. You know, they they've cut down the New York Times bestseller list. They've done a bunch of stuff, and now, like in print, you know, print is besieged essentially on all sides, mm-hmm. and there's a lot less space for reviews other than just like a capsule review, which is like a little book report. Yeah, and so I feel like. You know, there there are probably a lot more people doing very critical reviews on on places online. But in terms of like where people go and know to the look to find these established things, source, you know, yeah, like the, these, I mean, they're not as prevalent. Yeah, for I mean, for lack of a better term, there aren't like as the, many of them. The ivory tower, right? Like the idea that you know this is where you learn where the book is good or not. I mean, that's certainly changed, especially as we see. Um, you know, Amazon reshuffle the way it organizes its books, right? Like if those books shelves. And those front tables are devoted to the most reviewed and the best reviewed books by consumers. This is going to matter for sales and stuff a lot less. Yeah. Um, but it's not – it is um, – all that is not to say that people like Kakatani no longer matter or that their role has diminished um, because I don't think it has. I think that it's simply changed. Mm-hmm. And to me, the key place to look at that is um, is something that – you know, we've banged on on before, but like the idea that so much of this crowdsourced book discussion is so overwhelmingly like and often falsely positive. Yeah. You know, it can be very, you know, the you know, you just generate chatter and like it's considered a faux pas to not 
um, you know, discuss um, bad, you know, discuss books in a negative light online and all that kind of stuff. Because I know multiple blog reviewers who won't review a book right. if they don't like it. Right. No, and that's and in a way, and that's fine because when it's the, on that kind of person to person scale, it makes sense that that's not the that's not the point of those services. The point is to generate enthusiasm about enthousi- things you're enthusiastic about, not to take every book and decide which are good or bad. That's simply not what that environment is constructed for. Mm-hmm. But one thing, you know, that Kakatani did really great is that she believed that and this sounds like a basic point, but it's it's becoming less and less of an agreed upon thing. Um, that books are essential to a national conversation. That books are, you know, entirely part of that honest discourse that a nation has or a group of people has, that an artistic community has, that books play a role in how we talk to one another. And if that's true, then it's important to talk about the books honestly. And it's important to talk about the books people are talking about honestly. And on that note, what made her so great to me and what kind of made her the legendary and feared figure um, that got depicted everywhere. Like she appeared in like Sex and the City as like, you know, the feared book critic. You Did know. she really? Yeah, I don't yeah. remember she, she, that. Well, no. she wasn't like in the – I mean I just read about it. I don't watch Sex and the City. But like, <laughs> she, I just read about it. Like she, she had a um, – she was giving lip service, right? Like in the show, like one of the characters had written a book. And, you know, they were getting reviewed in the New York Times and it was supposed to be really exciting for all the characters. But she was hesitant because it was Kakatani reviewing and she was worried that it was going to get trashed, right? And that was the thing that she did is she wrote these negative reviews of just towering figures, you know, and was just totally unafraid of just telling you your book sucked even as it was going to go on and be a bestseller anyway or whatever. But, like, she would tell you what she thought and – not only, and we can get into some of those negative reviews here in a second. But it wasn't. It wasn't just because she wanted to take these towering figures down a peg. It was because she held everyone to a high standard. She wanted to, dis- and she wanted to discuss things honestly. Yeah. Like she knew that somewhere, even in the age of Twitter, and she had a lot of thoughts about Twitter. She wrote a whole essay on on, on it a few months ago. Um, she knew that there was a, some space that needed thought out, you know, honesty, you know, perhaps even in the negative. And I think in this age when. You know, the honest and in good faith negative critique has sort of fallen. I think that has absolutely fallen by the wayside. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I mean, I can think of some, you know, notable places or examples of, um, you know, uh, writers who do do that. But like as a general practice, I think that has definitely kind of diminished. And but she would do it. And she took on people, you know, at the height of their powers. And the thing with that, you know, she trashed, um, you know, she trashed one of Toni Morrison's books. She trashed. Um, Jonathan Franzen in what Guess I how think he is, felt one of, about that. Which is in one of the funniest openings to an art. I want to actually read it. So she he wrote a memoir, right? Um, called let's see, what was it? The Discomfort Zone was the name of uh, Franzen's memoir. This was back in two thousand. This was from two thousand six. I mean, this was right after the corrections. So um, you know, he was he was hot right then. Like he, you know, this was someone kind of you know viewed as one of the great American novelists at the time. And she wrote this thing. Um, I want, let's just read it and then we can talk about Franzen's uh, reaction. <laughs> Let me give you the line. So this is the um, beginning of the second paragraph here. In his new memoir, The Discomfort Zone, Mr. Franzen turns his unforgiving eye on himself and succeeds in giving us an odious self-portrait of the artist as a young jackass. <laughs> Petulant, pompous, obsessive, selfish, and overwhelmingly self-absorbed. Whew. That's rough. Um, So she didn't like it. She did not like it. And more importantly, like throughout this review, she sort of wondered aloud at why anyone would give a shit what Jonathan Franzen had to say like about like himself and his own life as opposed to like practicing 
the craft of like r- producing something with artistic value, which she it will be would be the first one to tell you he's very good at. Um, and then she loved his next novel. Well, yeah, no, she, yeah, she she loved the corrections and she loved uh, she loved freedom, and but this one she didn't like and she wasn't gonna gloss over it and she wasn't gonna. Um, you know, tell you that it was okay or it was just a blip. She was going to trash it from start to review, from start of the review to finish. And I think there's something really valuable in that. Um, now, obviously, Franzen didn't like that very much. And she he called her um, the, the stupidest stu- person in New York City. <laughs> God, what an ass. Um, <laughs> yeah, he yeah he didn't take it very well. Um, he was very, you know, he, he kind of did the uh, the internet thing where he, he like basically like kind of cry shouted nice ad hominem. Um, <laughs> Um, he took it very personally. Yes, he should. It's a very personal sentence in a way. Um, but he he wasn't pleased. But she didn't care who was pleased and who wasn't. And I think that was necessary because – and I think the turnaround point that makes that all – the reason this Franzen review is good other than being hilarious and taking down someone who deserves to be taken down a peg, down a peg, um, is that it allows for when she comes out and tells you that someone is really good, you believe her. Yeah. Right, because she'll because when you trust someone to give an honest opinion, good or bad, when they tell you something is great, um, you're gonna believe them. Like so, she reviewed you know David Foster Wallace and like told you um, that he was great. You know and that you know she's credited with a lot of like discoveries or like making people, you know, and like giving them their first real boost in the critical scene. And that I think um, it matters, and that sort of honest conversation still matter. But that discovery element is what I think has changed. Right, because people, yeah. like we said, people aren't really discovering writers in the New York Times as much anymore. They're discovering them on, and especially um, authors who aren't writing, you know, literary fiction. Right, like you know, young adult authors who, you know, that's more of a, it's a different medium where people are getting reviewed. Yeah. There, you find it somewhere else. You yeah. find it somewhere else. And my, I mean, I, I think that 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 it's not discovery anymore um, is is really valuable. So what what yeah. I kind of at least when I read a New York Times book review or, you know, uh, something from the L.A. LA Times or, you know, something, it's it's because I've read the book and I kind of want to see what other people think about it. Um, and for me, I mean, for me personally, that's a lot more valuable of an experience because I really enjoy engaging with criticism when I understand what they're talking about. You know, when they're hinting at an act of violence that brings everything to a head at the end of it. It's like, I can't engage in criticism in the thoughts of this writer unless, like, there aren't spoilers, you know, unless I know what they're talking about. And I feel like maybe the writing will be um, shifting towards that a little bit. I think it will be shifting more towards, you know, kind of the assumption that people have already read this book. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you can see that a little bit in the the New York Times review of books. You know, there are places where, you know, a, a book is kind of exciting for its its writing and how it how it presents a scene, but it'll give you all the details. It'll tell you how it ends. Yeah. Um, and so you still get the experience of it, but you're able to engage with the 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 plot before before you, you know, finish the article. Yeah. Um and like personally, I don't super mind spoilers because my whole life is spoilers <laughs> with with, yeah. you know, yeah. um with synopsises and stuff. Yeah. Um well, but so- I think I think it's transitioning to to short kind of essays of books that people 
read the book first and then they read it, maybe? It, yeah. I don't know. No, well, I think that – yeah. No, I think it released – you know, all this new – like all the immediacy in book discussion, the thing that happens right after publication, the, all the – um, you know, the word of mouth that has now transitioned to, um, you know, word of tweet, you know, word of online, mm-hmm. um, you know, that is that is handled by other channels than, you know, bit yeah. long form critical, you know, sites. But if that does open the door for these long, long form sites to discuss books a little bit more thoughtfully, take a little bit more time after the fact, like you're saying, without having to worry about being the first one on the scene. Yeah, without you know? needing the scoop. And to Yeah, exactly. Because the scoop, you have already lost the scoop. You know, the scoop is going to be handled by the internet. And so there's something I think that's going to happen where these book reviews, these things, um, they, they start, the, they guide the conversation once the dust settles. I mean, the thing is that we rarely ever remember books after that immediate, you know, outpouring of energy whenever something publishes and that, you know, the author publicity tour, the blog tour, all that kind of stuff. Once that all goes away, apart from like having made the decision to buy or not, to talk about it or not, that stuff kind of goes away, right? Like that sort of flash of enthusiasm disappears. And that's fine because, and that opens the door for what I think, you know, the next, you know, Kakatani can really do which is write the thoughtful pieces about why a book matters or not as it relates to the world after the fact, after the dust has settled, after we've had a chance to really sit with it. And like you're saying, after we've been freed of having to avoid spoilers or having to, (laughs) you know, deal with the immediacy of the publication, you know. Like I I see – because that ends up being what drives criticism and like the way we think about books on a larger scale anyway. you know, I think that's – I mean that after the dust settles, the kind of enduring – argument for why a book is good, that's yeah. what creates the canon. Yeah. So we, you know, we talk about the canon and kind of like books being in conversation with other books and kind of what what remains. And I feel yeah. like, you know, Zadie Smith is going to be in the canon. I mean, she already is, but she's going to be in the canon. E.L. James yeah. is going to be gone in a couple of years. Yeah. You know, and, and I think a big reason for that is because of writers like Michiko Kakutani. Yeah, who I mean, it's still like it. It still is, and will always be the critics who end up shaping things. And so, having good critics who can, um, you know, discuss things honestly, who can say when things are you know good and bad, and really have you believe them, and really have that rapport with their audience, I think it's critical. Um, so the last part of this, I think, has to do with why why she left. You know, and I because I think there's something really interesting and instructive there, and you could sort of sense it at least. I'm not saying I could sense that she was ready to go because who could – I mean that's – no one made that prediction I don't think. But you could definitely feel some discontent or at least some – a slight change in the way she was writing and what she was doing over the last few months. Um, and it relates to you know what sources are saying you know the reason is for her going, which is that she wants to be able to spend more time writing about things that aren't books. She wants to write about um, – she wants to write about culture and Trump's America, mm. right? And she wants to do that in forms that aren't book reviews. And you could see it, right? As she was, um, you know, over the last few months, like right before the election, she did that review that everybody um, – The one really, of the rise of Hitler? Yeah, she she reviewed yeah. – she very like <laughs> – I don't know what the term is. She very overtly reviewed a book that um, – you know, it's a bi- yeah, it's a biography of Hitler that came out before he and, is Hitler, right? Essentially, and yeah. so and she made all these points that everyone has kind of said, oh well, you could take all that same language and apply it to Trump, and it's, 
Um, you know, she was clearly doing this, and she was very overtly and not all that subtly pointing at him, right, at, in this moment before the election. This was September, I think. And and then, you know, after you know, after the election happened, um, she wrote she wrote reviews of Shattered, you know, the critique of the Hillary Clinton campaign. She wrote um, a review of, you know, the giant Obama biography and just lit that one on fire, too. <laughs> um, she hated that book. I don't know if you get a chance to see that review, but, like, um, she started and, – and these were barely – I mean, eventually, these these pieces of hers, they stopped feeling like book reviews, you know? And they started feeling more like she was trying to free herself from the form. Like, she, what, what she wanted to do was just, like, get something off her chest. Yeah. As and opposed to having to, to tie it. it to t- – <laughs> and so in that way, I'm, like, thankful for her, for her making this choice because hopefully we'll see her work, you know, elsewhere without the this form that she – you know, maybe necessarily wasn't all that into anymore. Um, and like, I don't know, like if you go on her, if you go on her Twitter feed, for instance, and I think this is instructive and I want to read, you know, she wrote something in the New York Times. She wrote a piece um, last year about Twitter. And she says, she says here, Twitter feeds can be a little like, can be like little magazines curated to reflect users' personal interests. Literary, political, scholarly, comic, or all of the above. Daily newsletters that create a small personal snail trails through the vast landscape of data that is the web today. Um, you know, and she kind of makes this point about how, you know, she says here, you know, for me, tweeting is mainly about curation. And she's a big retweeter. Well, so she, and it used to be where she would do this and she would be sharing, you know, book lists and art and all these kind of things that really, you know, she's kind of an engaging follow. But go look at her feed now. <laughs> she's pretty much got one subject. On her mind, you know, and she's doing the she's honestly she's doing the same thing all the rest of us are doing, which is just retweeting Trump shit again and again and again and again and again. And like, I think there's something um, I don't know what the word is for it. Maybe you can help me. But like even this woman who is just a, you know, literary critic giant, having sort of been on online, like having been reduced to, you know, the rest of the writhing masses, just like forwarding the latest like development in the investigation, you know. And to me, it just kind of speaks to the the age a little, that our best critic um, kind of got, and like, like all of us did, you know, it sort of got overwhelmed by just the absurdity of this moment. And um, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited to see, you know, what she does next, if anything, if she really – I mean, because she's kind of a private person. You know, there's not – you know, she's kind of known for not being all that available. You know, she's not that – there's not that many photographs of her, you know. So who knows how much we'll really see of her. But um, I think, you know, this – you know, the, her leaving and deciding to do this really speaks not only to the shift in how books are being talked about, but how just the world is being talked about now. And – I don't know. There's something just entirely overwhelming about this age that we're living in. And you can kind of see it when someone like this who wants to talk about books all the time and, you know, has these really thoughtful opinions sort of gets turned into the adult Internet brain that the rest (laughs) of us are. And I don't know. Like, I guess we'll see. But in closing, um, you know, there's not there probably won't be another, you know, like Kakatani. I mean, she was um, and is. I mean, we're talking about her like it's a eulogy. It's not. Um, you know, it she feels was, like one, she though. was great. And there's a lot about her. There's a lot about her career um, as the New York Times book critic that really needs to be paid attention to, you know, especially in terms of the honesty of her reviews, the bravery in her reviews. And, um, you know, just hopefully, you know, we see more work from her coming up in this new form that she clearly would like to take.
Well, I want to talk about um, our our right tip. So we were joking when we said that your right tip for this week is to just to like get movie deals. I wasn't joking. Eric wasn't joking. I mean, like I'm not joking either. But but before you do that, here's a way to help you get there. Um, you know, you hear a lot about remember to use all your senses. You know, when you're writing and you're creating worlds, it's really easy to forget about touch. It's really easy to forget about smell. It's really easy for, to forget about a lot of things other than just what your eye is seeing or pretending to see. Um, so that's kind of that's that's the first tip. But also, I want you as as you're exploring these other senses, I want you to really really pay attention to how those senses feel beyond that very like physical like data coming in and being processed by your brain. So if you take, you know, it was really hot in Florida um, and when you were on a road, everything smelled like tar, right? And so you have this humidity and you have the scent of tar, but the humidity, it's doing more than that. It's making, you know, it feels kind of oppressive. It's It feels like it's hard to push air out of your chest, you know, and like you, you, you take all of these experiences, all of these sensory experiences, and you can turn them into something that um, will get you a little bit deeper into the world, into the scene that you're writing. So make sure to talk about all of the feelings, sensory, <laughs> like all of the sensory feelings, yeah. but then all of the feelings that the sensory feelings evoke Use in them you. as a vehicle to like talk exactly. about your characters. Exactly. Yeah. So that is your right tip of the week. Um, remember, our query episode goes live August 17th, writing by reading the 24th and first pages the 31st. Send us your first pages and queries and pretty much anything else at printrunpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you next week. <laughs>